Hi there, welcome to the latest installment of The Tint, a podcast dedicated to lovers of the natural botanical style aquarium, nature lovers in general, and aquarium geeks of all sorts. I'm Scott Fellman, your host on this little adventure, and uh, today we're going to talk about some aquatic features that I think deserve a little more representation in our aquariums. Hard to believe that, but it's something that we still need to work on here. <clears throat> now, the aquarium hobby in, in and of itself is a funny beast, especially when it comes to aquascaping. It kind of exists when you think about it in a world that's like halfway between kinetic art, home decorating, gardening, and biology. And it'll change, uh, you know, change and, and evolve over time. But it always challenges us to create some work that draws from multiple disciplines. And it seems to me that we spend as much time trying to find that one perfect rock or piece of wood to create that look that we want as we do even deciding what we want to replicate. I'd love to see a focus shift a little bit towards inspiration itself. And we often overlook the amazing amount of inspiration that's offered up by nature herself. And we're talking about inspiration to create dynamic, uniquely functionally aesthetic environments that I've talked about before. And here's just a few uh, examples of those types of environments that I think deserve a little bit more representation in our aquariums. Let's start with what I think are completely underrepresented in our tanks. Uh, for example, open sandy habitats. Yeah, and when you think about it, some of the most abundant and common uh, areas in streams and rivers and, and other bodies of water are accumulations of fine sand at small pebbles with little to no uh, vertical relief. Uh, areas like this are really generally occupied by fast-moving fishes like danios or active bottom-dwelling fishes like Corydoras. And in some areas, you'll find little bits of uh, vegetation, stands of submerged aquatic vegetation, and those provide a sort of, you know, oasis of sorts for fishes to forage, shelter, and spawn among. And in other areas, you'll find the occasional rock or two. It may be a branch or a submerged log or palm fronds or whatever. And these create little micro habitats within the larger area. Something that we can think about on a larger scale when we're aquascaping or representing a natural habitat is you can represent part of a natural habitat, not the entire habitat. You're not limited to just you know, a fast-moving river or whatever, you could represent a little niche among that. And often, these are very shallow environments, which obviously bodes well for aquarium replication. Um, they're often shaded by overhanging vegetation. They have variable currents, uh, and that's based on runoff or seasonal rains. And these are really interesting because you can sort of evolve them. They evolve in nature to a different sort of habitat altogether, and you can evolve them in the aquarium in much the same way. So, for example, when storms divert the, the water into these streams and the, the fallen trees and branches and other debris are, you know, hurled into the water, the flow patterns are often disrupted. Uh, botanical materials are accumulated by these sort of natural dams, and the whole character of the environment changes into something altogether different. And that's another interesting aspect of these habitats. It gives you the option as an, as an aquarist to, you know, take some creative license when you replicate this sort of seasonal evolution or transformation by adding or removing botanical materials like seed pods and leaves and so forth, or even throwing in branches, creating a very interesting and dynamic display. So that's something that we should think about. You start with a, a very open, sandy environment and then evolve it over time. Uh, it also sort of gives you the opportunity to have more diversity in one out of one aquarium, something that a lot of uh, impatient and, uh, uh, and uh, easily uh, bored aquarists might want to get into. The other habitat, I know it seems hard to believe, 
uh, for as much as I talk about it in, 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 as leaf litter beds. And yeah, for as much as we talk about them uh, with regards to their biology and function, we seldom see them replicated in aquariums, which is interesting. So without going into this lengthy analysis as to why this might be, I'm going to just try to sell you on them just a little bit more. Now, I love these litter beds not only for the unique aesthetics that they represent, but for the potential functionality that these habitats bring to the aquarium. I think that these habitats, which as we know, host a huge variety of fishes, can really be foundational for unlocking some new secrets of aquatic husbandry and, and you know, fish behavior. And by doing a bit of research on these natural leaf litter habitats, you can actually gleam some interesting tidbits of information that can be applied to aquarium design. And of course, you get perspective on the threats and challenges that face these habitats. And here's an example of one aspect of these habitats that I learned from a really interesting scientific study. It's the relationship between water depth and litter depth and how it can be applied to our aquarium designs. In one area where the water depth was a maximum of six feet, which is about two meters, the leaf litter depth was only about eight inches or 20 centimeters. So in a very shallow side tributary, the leaf litter depth was about four inches or 10 centimeters with the water level above it only about 12 inches or 30 centimeters. So that's like aquarium depth, right? And think about the idea of food sources, which are abundant in leaf litter. Here's where the functional aspect of leaf litters, uh, leaf litter in aquariums comes in. The benthic microfauna that our fishes tend to feed on are also affected by this phenomenon, this, uh, this depth and accumulation and so forth. And the fishes tend to follow the food. So this makes the case for fishes sort of learning to adapt to a changing environment and perhaps maybe the idea of fishes having to sort of constantly adjust to a changing physical notice i didn't say chemical environment could be some sort of trigger hidden deeply in their genetic code that maybe stimulates overall health immunity or even spawning among fishes we won't know until we play more with these right maybe there's something in their programming that says hey you're at home it triggers specific adaptive behaviors that have been input into their genetic code over eons of evolution. I find this really fascinating because, you know, we can learn more about our fish's behaviors, create really interesting habitats for them simply by adding botanicals or leaves to our aquariums and allowing them to sort of do their thing, to break down, move about, and, uh, you know, be added to over time as we do maintenance, much like what happens in nature. And of course, like in any other habitat, leaf litter beds have their own sort of rhythm. They foster substantial communities of fishes over time. The dynamic behind this biotope could probably best be summarized in a, in a really interesting excerpt from an ac academic paper I found on blackwater leaf litter communities by a biologist by the name of Peter Allen Henderson that's useful for a lot of us that are attempting to replicate these kind of communities in our aquarium. And I'll just read it to you. Life within the litter is not a crowded, chaotic scramble for face, space and food. Each species occupies a subregion defined by physical variables such as flow and oxygen content, water depth, litter depth, and particle size. This subtle division of space is key to understanding the maintenance of diversity. With subdivision of time, it is also evident with, for example, gymnotoids, which are knife fishes, hunting by night and cichlids hunting by day. This is only possible when each species has its place within which to hide. So for all the above reasons and many of the others that I can't even touch on in the briefness of this piece, consider trying to replicate a leaf litter bed in your next aquarium. I think it would be cool. <laughs> Another idea would be flooded forest floors, meadows, and moorish halls. Okay, these are three distinct little habitats, but they have similar characteristics in common. That being they're all formerly terrestrial habitats, which are subject to seasonal or longer inundation. 
which turns them into a pretty rich aquatic habitat. Now, a prominent feature of a lot of these uh, habitats is submerged terrestrial grasses, something we've started sharing with you our ideas on in recent blogs and we'll probably talk more about in the future. And these tolerate some periods of submersion. So although the exact species of tropical grasses are not typically available to us in the hobby, we could select some decent surrogates to represent them from native, uh, local available grasses or utilizing other terrestrial grasses, riparian plants, etc. And you could probably create a pretty reasonable facsimile of these kind of habitats in our aquariums. That's an area where I'd like to see a lot more work. We're going to be doing a lot in that, and I hope to share that with you in coming, uh, coming episodes. So the idea of flooded groves of terrestrial trees and shrubs, like the Moorish Hall, which is home to a variety of palms, um, the possibility there is endless. There's lots of interesting, aesthetically uh, challenging and creative opportunities to replicate this, uh, this habitat. You can either replica- replicate an aquarium based on the underwater habitat around the submerged you know, palm tree, like its trunk perhaps, uh, and representing the materials that accumulate around it. Or you could opt to simply represent the, the palm fronds, seed pods, and other materials as they lie on the substrate, which is a pretty fascinating habitat in and of itself. And of course, the idea of submerged forest floors with their abundance of terrestrial materials, that's where many of us do play. However, I think if we're a bit more literal and trying to replicate specific locales and microhabitats within this broader genre, I think we can create some really interesting uh, aquariums that would be really fun to, uh, to share with the world. And the dynamics of these habitats with the, their real abundant use of botanical materials and opportunities for replication is going to continue to be a real primary source of inspiration for a lot of us. So let's keep working on those and try them, see what we can come up with. Final little uh, underappreciated niche that I'm going to talk about today uh, are root tangles in the area at the water's edge. Now, I love that complexity and the earthiness of that habitat when land meets water and that abundance of natural materials that we have now available. Hey, you know, like from Tannin, for example, Uh, it's really easier than ever to recreate a pretty realistic version of this niche within the aquarium. Root tangles and the associated shorelines are really remarkable for their productivity and their ability to attract fishes to forage, shelter, spawn, and live out their entire life cycle among. The uh, approaches you can take are numerous. There's a lot. Um, You could replicate the habitat with the roots projecting down into the aquarium from above the water surface. So you get that unique above and below dynamic and you can use wood like, uh, for example, manzanita, uh, mangrove, and some of the the other wood that's now available to create that look. Or you could just focus on the roots of a tree in the submerged state, which is something that I think is irresistible to a lot of hobbyists. We've done this in an effective uh, manner ourselves, I think, with our current brackish system that we featured before and we'll probably feature more pictures of again, where we tried to emulate or replicate a, uh, the, the root area of a mangrove tree or a mangrove thicket and uh, creates a really interesting habitat above and below the water. Or you could just, again, focus on a sort of fusion of the above and below habitat, which is really an interesting niche to play with. And uh, nature provides you with all kinds of inspiration. If you look at photos or just go out there to to the nearby stream or creek or um, just go online and and look up uh, streams and you'll see all kinds of interesting habitats. There's so much to explore in the natural world. And the point of this is there's so many habitats and aspects of these habitats to replicate 
it really gives us a lot of unique opportunities to get out of our comfort zone and study both the form and the function of these environments. And you can create some amazing work by just doing that. And I think that with the creativity that exists in our community, and again, the availability of natural materials, which is more wide than ever before from both Tannin Aquatics and many other vendors out there, the possibilities are, are endless. And the inspiration of nature as it is provides us with an almost unlimited opportunity to really to learn and express our creativity by just looking at some of these habitats with an increased scrutiny rather than replicating, you know, that guy's latest scape on Instagram or wherever. We're actually elevating the art and science of natural aquariums and educating people, especially the uninitiated to the hobby. We're educating them about the dynamics, the function, and even the threats that these environments face, which is perhaps the biggest win of all for everyone. So as always, express yourself as you see fit, but do consider some of these amazing and underappreciated features that which nature's created as an amazing inspiration for you. Stay observant, stay engaged, stay studious, stay diligent, stay creative, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman. I look forward to hearing from you, seeing your work, and sharing unique ideas on the natural environment and how we can interpret that in our aquariums. Take care now.